Live from the Bird Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen in real time. But only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour two conversations. Up first, we'll check in with the motivator, Les Brown and Ariva Martin on the eve of their new shows, which premiere tomorrow only on KBLA Talk 1580. Les Brown's month-long radio residency commences tomorrow at 11 a.m. and encores weeknights at 6 p.m. And Ariva Martin in real time will be heard weekdays 4 to 6 p.m. beginning tomorrow. We will speak with both of them today. We'll talk to both today on the top side of our two. While I'm doing programming right quick, don't forget tomorrow, uh, the relatively new sheriff of Los Angeles County, Robert Luna, is our guest in studio tomorrow, live in the first hour of this very time tomorrow, uh, 9 a.m. Sheriff Luna, our lead guest tomorrow, in an exclusive conversation, his first sit-down interview in-depth on talk radio uh, tomorrow. 9 a.m. We had the police chief, as you'll call, last Thursday, an exclusive with him, his first uh, hour-long sit-down uh, on talk radio. So uh, uh, Chief Moore was here last Thursday as he's uh, looking for a second five-year term as police chief. Uh, and tomorrow, the sheriff, uh, exclusively here on KBLA Talk 1580. You know how we do it around here. On the B side of our two today, yesterday, President Biden informed Congress that he will end the COVID-19 national emergency and public health emergency come May 11th. What implications will this decision have? Will booster shots still be needed? What about the different variants? So many questions. Thankfully, our resident physician, Dr. Robert Drummond, has answers. He will join us on the backside of our two. In our third hour, two conversations about underrepresentation in Hollywood during this awards season. Up first, award-winning screenwriter and producer Rodney Barnes joins us for a career conversation about his journey and to discuss his new graphic novel out today, Blackula, The Return of the King, based off the 1972 cult classic film, now celebrating, believe it or not, its 50th anniversary, Blackula. Love that. On the B side of our three, of the 11, the 111, I should say, the 111 directors hired to make the 100 top grossing movies just last year, only 9% were women. What gives? Acclaimed writer-director Crystal Roberson joins us on the backside of our three. But in this first hour today, let's talk politics with the very popular Washington Post columnist and author, Philip Bump. The aftermath, the last days of the baby boom, And the future of power in America is his latest text, and I am delighted, humbled, in fact, to have Philip Bump on this program. Philip, how are you today, sir? I'm well. How are you? 
I'm wonderful. Good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad we got the hour. Uh, a great deal to to unpack here. Before I jump into this, I'm just curious. I don't don't mean to put you on the spot, uh, but since it is the topic of the country and you write um, beautifully and prolifically about so many subjects, uh, have you had a chance to to put your pen to paper or your fingers on your keyboard uh, to write anything about what's happening in Memphis? And if so, tell me what you said. You know, I have not yet. I was off last week because the book came out last week. Uh, I have uh, obviously focused in the past a lot, particularly on the extent to which uh, we see police departments operating without accountability. Uh, and it's, you know, I think that there is a lot to be said on that. I, I am actually working on something this week looking at uh, the way in which the expectations around protests uh, are sort of misrepresented in the media and how people leap to conclusions about what happens with protests in scenarios like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's obviously a lot to be said in, uh, about that tragic situation. Yep, I won't get ahead of your piece, but given that you've covered this issue so many times in the past, uh, were you surprised by what you saw in Memphis? No, I mean, I think I think that in terms of, <laughs> not sure if you mean the attack or the aftermath, but yeah, I wasn't yeah. surprised by either, yeah. right? And certainly we've seen these things happen so often, uh, and I think that there is this really facile misunderstanding by a lot of people that somehow the race of the officers who were involved in this and the five who were immediately terminated uh, somehow did under you know eliminates the idea that there are systemic issues at, at play here that involve race, which I think everyone who pays close attention to these things know isn't the case. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't surprised by the aftermath either. I think that it was, you know, that the reaction was uh, obviously warranted. Uh, I think that, you know, Fox News did their best to, anticipate that there would be all sorts of violence and horrors that followed from this because that's what they do and that there wasn't wasn't surprising and i and i think that this is a good moment for america to stop and once again consider what what are we doing and why do these things keep happening yep. one last question about that but i think i can link it uh, i want to link it to your text which we're going to spend the hour talking about here in just a second um the text is called the aftermath the last days of the baby boom and the future of power in america Put you on the spot, but if anybody can handle it, you can because you wrote the book. Sure. Um, do you see it, what is the linkage for you, if there is any, between this particular generation of policing, whether it's changed or not, but this generation of policing uh, and the baby boom generation that you write about in your text? Is there any linkage there? Well, it's it's absolutely the case that the baby boom generation, and you know, again, we're going to get into this, I assume, but the baby boom generation is a much whiter generation than either the generation before it or the generation that came after it. You know, immigration laws were loosened right after the baby boom, so we see this much more diverse America today than existed at the time, and so we are, to a large extent, only now coming to terms with what it means to have a large, diverse uh, community in the United States, uh, in part because now in America, which doesn't look the way that it used to look. And so we, we, are, we, we have a better appreciation for those who choose to see it of the ways in which racism is in the United States and has been embedded since the time of the baby boom. And so we see a lot of reaction from baby boomers, both in terms of systemic racism within uh, policing, but even more broadly than that, we see a lot of reaction, hostile reaction, from this very heavily white generation to the idea that these things exist. But we also see a younger, more diverse uh, generation of Americans rising up and saying, hey, look, we recognize how these issues uh, affect systems in the United States and are confronting them. Uh, and obviously that's manifested in lots of ways over the past few years. Just getting started in this hour. Glad I've got him for the hour. Philip Bump, one of the most popular writers, a columnist for The Washington Post, our guest in this hour. His new book is just out. It's called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. So much to talk about regarding that generation and 
the future of power in this country. Uh, just getting started. Delighted to have him and delighted to have you tuned in in this hour to KBLA Talk 15. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Philip Bump on KBLA Talk 1580. Again, his new book is called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power. In America, Philip. Before that, before that break, we started talking about, and I want to get back to this right now, um, the 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 racial makeup or lack thereof, frankly, vis a vis the baby boom generation. Tell me more about the issue of race as you uh, as you unpack it in the book, vis a vis this generation. Yeah, so people don't really recognize that the baby boom is as densely white as it is. Uh, the immigration had been. Uh, basically shut down in the early 1900s as a response to people from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe who were viewed even at the time as not fully white coming to the United States. And so the United States limited immigration. So when the baby boom started in the mid-1940s, the average uh, immigrant was somebody's grandparent. It was someone who had immigrated many decades before. So then what happens is in the late 1960s, immigration laws are loosened. So you start to see an influx of people from Asia, uh, from Central America, from Mexico, that really changes the demography of the country. And so it's fascinating because we've long had this understanding of race in the United States as being white versus black, right? And that that there is, uh, particularly for people from the baby boom generation, they see the, the uh, distinction of race along those lines primarily. But that's really not what American democracy looks like in the moment. And if you're thinking about what happens with power once the baby boom is gone or once it has much less of the power in the United States than it does currently, you have to think about how much of this is a reaction to that uh, increasing diversity in the country. And so there's, there are studies. If you ask people, if you go to people and you say, hey, look, the United States is pretty soon going to be majority non-white, mm-hmm. the people who freaked out the most at that are white Republicans. So when we think about how in this moment we're seeing this increased diversity, we're seeing that white people are are losing uh, the the majority that they once had. Although you know we can talk a lot about how even that is sort of iffy. Um, that that triggers a lot of people. A lot of people get freaked out about that, and that is a driver. This increased diversity is a driver for a lot of the political tension that we see in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your read? What's your research tell you about how the baby boom generation has reacted to? notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, so if you look at uh, the 2012 election, right, so Barack Obama wins in 2008, he wins again in 2012, mm-hmm. and his 2012 win really surprised a lot of Republicans. They thought Mitt Romney was their guy, that Americans would vote for him. Polling suggested that he was likely to win, and then he didn't. So what does the GOP do? They sit down and they say, hey, look, let's examine what's going on. What are we doing wrong? And they decide... We need to do better outreach. We need to reach out to black Americans. We need to reach out to Hispanic Americans. We need to make the case the Republican Party is a party for all Americans. And then what happens is in 2014, first, there's a surge in children migrating to the border that triggers a big backlash to immigration. Then we see the emergence of Black Lives Matter, and it makes race very salient to the political conversation. All of a sudden, white Americans are forced to confront this idea of what happens when police encounter black people. Mm-hmm. Those two things provide space for Donald Trump to step up in 2015 and say, hey, look, white people, you're not the problem. Let's all rally together, essentially. And so instead of doing what the GOP had said after 2012, which is let's reach out to more people, Donald Trump essentially stood up and said, mm, let's go the other direction. <laughs> let's triple mm-hmm. down on these racial politics that are really centered on white grievance. And so then you see 
that powers the GOP even to today. And one of the fascinating things is if you look at the 2022 midterms, with Republicans again underperformed, their response was from Ronna McDaniel, the head of the party, to say, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to reach out to other non-white people. And so they're back to the same place they were a decade ago. Mm. Broadly speaking, we'll unpack this more as we move throughout the hour. But broadly speaking, sure. since the book is called, of course, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, um, right. is America headed in the right direction or the wrong direction post-baby boom? Well, I mean, the, the direction in which America's headed to a large extent is still being formulated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the points I make in the book, which is that baby boomers still hold a lot of power, and where America ends up is going to be dependent a lot on what baby boomers do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of question about the extent to which we see these younger populations who are much, much, much more heavily Democratic than were their parents and grandparents. They vote a lot more uh, Democratic. What does that mean in 40 years' time? Does that mean that because... Those young people are now old. They're going to still vote Democratic. People tend to have this assumption that when you get older, you get more conservative. But we see that's not necessarily the case uh, with uh, with Black Americans, with Hispanic Americans. It was it was presumably the case for White Americans who are now older and voting more conservatively. But we've never seen a population of voters that is as diverse as the population is now. And so when they get older, are they likely to vote more heavily Republican just because they've gotten older, even if they're still uh, you know, people of color? That seems pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to predict these things, but it does seem likely uh, that at the very least the Republican Party will have to actually adjust some of its policies and positions to appeal to them or it's going to have bad luck in the elections. So it's clear to me that the baby boom generation, as you write about it, uh, uh, has not been as as embracing, as magnanimous as they ought to be around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I want to ask the flip side of that question, which is, uh, what is the enduring legacy, at least up until this present moment of this generation? What did, what did baby boomers get right uh, regarding uh, right. the nation? Well, there are a lot of things, right? And the baby boom is a massive, massive generation. That's the whole point, right? I mean, you know, in 1945, there's 140 million people in America, and over the next two decades, another 76 million babies are born, right? It's a huge injection of people. And so you have, you know, in the baby boom, you have a lot of, you know, white male Republicans, but you also have a lot of white female uh, Democrats who are, you know, some of the people led the resistance to Donald Trump in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. So what is what is their legacy? How, how, how do we look back at the boomers? Mm-hmm. I think that it's still being shaped. I mean, it certainly is the case they were a shock to the system. They reshaped the United States, absolutely. And baby boomers were at the forefront of a lot of fights uh, the Democrats won over the course of the past, you know, 50 years, right? I mean, pushing back in the Vietnam War, uh, embracing the civil rights movement. That was, you know, some very young boomers that were involved in that, uh, although that generally happened before the boomers became of age. Mm. But there were a lot of ways in which they engaged in fights that are ones that Democrats uh, were were, uh, hoping they would win. But it's also the case that the baby boom doesn't necessarily reflect the fights that are important to young people today, that they weren't fighting for things like climate change. They weren't fighting for things like LGBTQ rights. They weren't fighting, fighting against things like systemic racism, in part because those just weren't issues that people were paying attention to or that weren't as salient to their lives. But now, because young people are so engaged in those fights, they tend to look at older Americans and be like, hey, man, where were you? Uh, which oftentimes isn't even that fair. Yep. I could debate you on this. I'm not sure where you'd come down to this debate, given that you've written the book, but I could debate you on this, I suspect, Philip, um, that there is a um, there's a strain of selfishness 
um, that runs through this particular generation. Uh, and I could unpack that if we had time or needed to. I don't think I need to with you because you're the expert on this. But I could argue there's a strain of selfishness in this particular generation, given what you've just said about the, about the things that they did do, but about some of the other things that they did not focus on. I'm, I'm only using that as a preface to ask the following in what ways do you think the baby boom generation has shortchanged millennials, has shortchanged Gen Z? And I ask that because as we, you know, Bill Clinton famously said that every election is about the future, right? He's right about that, that every election is about the future. So in what ways uh, have this baby boom generation that's been running things for quite some time now shortchanged the generations to come behind it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you're, you're right about the selfishness, although I don't think it's individual. It is just that this boom... You know, when you have tens of millions of kids born, suddenly you got to sort of you got to build more schools. You, yeah. gotta, you have to work to accommodate this this generation. So I think the baby boomers sort of collectively got used to being the center of attention and got used to being able to one being the ones that everyone was focused on. You know, marketers they all turn teenagers, and all of a sudden every business in the country wants to sell them stuff, right? And they were the people that attracted all the attention. And now part of the challenge we're seeing is this generational fight older and younger, because now we have this very large millennial generation, Gen Z, who is also wants uh, resources and power, to your point. So, you know, at the same time that the boomers are reaching retirement age and need things like Medicare, Social Security, housing, and need resources from the federal and state government for that, we have this younger generation saying, but wait, no, we need to invest in schools, we need to invest in young people, we need to invest in child care. And the boomers are used to having that fight. So, to your point, it is absolutely the case that baby boomers hold a lot of wealth collectively. Individual baby boomers are not necessarily very wealthy, right? There's just a lot of them. So, of course, they have collectively a lot of wealth. But it is the case. A lot of baby boomers, for example, own homes. And a lot of them see those homes as storehouses of value that they're going to use when they retire. And so they tend to do things like protect the value of their homes. So if someone wants to build a big apartment building down the street, which will provide a lot of housing to young people, they oppose it because they don't want to see their perceived value of their home decrease. And so you get a lot of these individual decisions that are made around the country that do things like limit the supply of housing, make housing costs go up, and disadvantage younger people. So there's a lot of ways in which, simply by virtue of there being so many baby boomers, it affects younger generations negatively because of their collective decisions. Mm. Um we have, I think, made some advancement, uh, Philip. I think you and I would agree. We've, we've made some advancement uh, vis-a-vis our health care system. Uh, one can debate uh, Obamacare, but at least we started to move a little closer during his era uh, to universal health care. Not close enough to my mind uh, or my taste, but we're moving a, a little bit closer uh, to universal health care. Um, because this generation of baby boomers is so massive, as you have said already in detail in your text, I am curious as to what kind of pressure these boomers are going to put on the healthcare system in the coming years. Say say nothing. No, say, a, say nothing of the young yeah. folk. These the, the young folk who have to take care of them uh, as they get older no. because there are so many of them. But what what pressure does it put on our already uh, fragile, in some ways, healthcare system? No, this is. I mean, you've identified two really really key points. So the first is that you know, as I said, the baby boom. All of a sudden, they're all five years old, and you got to build a ton of kindergartens. Like one of the fascinating things I discovered is. You know, when you go back and look at this debate over people naming schools after Confederate leaders, right? Mm-hmm. When were a lot of those schools named after Confederate leaders? During the baby boom, because they had to build all these new schools. It happens right after Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm. right? So you see how the baby boom actually overlaps with that just because they had to build all these schools. But now we're at the point, to your point, exactly, 
where we have to start thinking about, well, now we have this huge influx of seniors, a much higher percentage of seniors than we've ever seen before in the United States. Where do they live? How much is how much is medical cost? Uh, you know, how much of that do we have to pay for by the government? How much do they have to pay out of pocket? So I spoke with these experts. They said, you know, last year two trillion dollars was transferred from baby boomers to younger generations or to, or to organizations. And over the course of the next couple of decades, they expect fifty trillion dollars of wealth to move from the baby boomers to other places. But the question is, how much of that goes to things like? paying for long-term medical care costs. You know, people live longer than they used, or at least they did prior to COVID, but they live longer than they used to 30 years ago, and that means more time to spend down their wealth, more time that they may have to pay for medical services, a broader range of medical services they can pay for that's really going to strip a lot of money away from this very wealthy generation. Mm. But at the same time, demographers are very concerned about the point raised, that because there's so many more old people now, there aren't enough younger people paying into the tax system. There aren't enough younger people paying into the processes that we need in order to generate the revenue that we need to care for the older people. And this, there is this uh, ratio between working age people and older people that's just started to spike and skyrocket in a way that's really disadvantageous. And if you talk to demographers, one thing they point to is we need to increase immigration. We need more workers in here to help contribute to the economy or else we're not going to have enough tax, tax revenue to actually uh, – uh, take care of these older people. I so got, the whole system is breaking. Yeah, I want to got 90 seconds before news, traffic, and sports will continue sure. on the other side. But the irony of what you just said to me, if I heard you correctly, and I'm sure I did, uh, is that at a moment where you have demographers looking at the impact of this aging out of the aftermath, if you will, of the baby boom generation, you've got demographers saying we need more immigration. It's these baby boomers who are fighting against <laughs> immigration reform. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right, because there is this built-in fear uh, that's largely race-based, but also, also just broadly about immigration, this is, this is the fight, and I think that part of what the book aims to do is make clear these are the stakes, and here's how we ought to be making these decisions. Uh, a great deal more to talk about with Philip Bump, a uh, popular Washington Post columnist, uh, takes a deep dive into what the end of the baby boom means for our politics, our economics in his new best-selling book. It's called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. We'll get more to that latter part, the power in America to come or not. Uh, when we come forward after news, traffic and sports with Philip Bump on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. Before we get back to our conversation with Philip Bump about his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, uh, I am pleased to share this information with you. Tomorrow, as you well know, is the first day of February. And KBLA Talk 1580 is turning up the frequency for Black History Month tomorrow uh, don't miss the premiere of internationally renowned motivator Les Brown's month-long KBLA Talk 1580 radio residency. You've got to be hungry. His new show premieres tomorrow at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast weeknights at 6 p.m. during the entire month of February exclusively on this station. At 4 p.m. tomorrow is the premiere of our new afternoon drive time show, Arriva Martin in real time, weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Also tomorrow, Metro Rolls out, we're really excited about this. Metro rolls out the K line train wrapped in KBLA Talk 1580. Tomorrow, running around the streets of Los Angeles, it's the K line train 
wrapped in KBLA Talk 1580. So look out for the train and some familiar faces you'll see wrapped on that train as it moves throughout the city. Finally, tomorrow, KBLA.store opens with all kinds of fresh merch. So be sure to log on to KBLA.store for some amazing merch and great gifts. All Black History Month long, KBLA Talk 1580 is turning up. Their frequency is going to be a busy day around here tomorrow, not to mention that Sheriff Luna uh, is our guest tomorrow in the uh, first hour of this program. So a busy, busy day uh, on the uh, first day of Black History Month um, on KBLA. It's going to be a great month, and so stay tuned to us every day. But tomorrow, I'm going to tell you all the stuff that's happening on day one. Now back to Philip Bump and his book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, Philip, about whether or not this generation, to one of the points you made earlier, is going to leave very much to the generations that come behind it. Now I'm talking specifically about families. Um, this generation, right. as you established earlier, has more wealth than any generation ever uh, prior to it. Uh, they just collectively control and own and have a lot of wealth. But to the extent mm-hmm. they live longer because of advances in science and other things, to the extent they live longer uh, and continue to tro- uh, con- control certain uh, levers of power, when all is said and done in the aftermath, how much will they leave to their kids and to their grandkids? So the estimation, I spoke with a firm called Cerule Associates, and their estimation was between now and 2045 really between 2020 and 2045, the, the total would be about $54 trillion. Now, that's a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not all going to kids and grandkids. First part, because not everyone who's a baby boomer has kids and grandkids, right? You know, one of the things that's important to consider here, especially when we talk about things like the number of working-age people to older people, is that white people tend to have fewer kids, and as such, they have fewer people to whom they can pass on this, this wealth. Uh, also consider, to your point, that there's going to be have to, a lot of spending on Medicare, on uh, on medical treatments, rather, on housing, senior housing. I spoke with a woman who's, you know, part of the senior housing industry, and she, you know, they're ecstatic. They, they've been waiting for this moment since the 1950s, this, this, where there's going to be this huge investment in senior housing, but that's going to draw down that money, too. So when we talk about all this $54 trillion being drawn out of the baby boom, a lot of it's going to institutions. A lot of it's going to care for uh, the baby boomers themselves. And the point that was made to me by this firm, Cerule and Associates, is it's still, you know, wealth inequality still exists. Wealthier people are going to pass on more of that wealth to their wealthy kids, either directly or through things like buying them their own houses. And so there, there is going to be a persistence of wealth inequality at the same time. So it's by no means the case, you know, that all that money is going to end up sort of evenly distributed around the country. That's just simply not how it's going to work. Yep. <clears throat> Let me just say right quick for all the white people listening right now, um, if you're in that category that Philip mentioned a moment ago and you ain't got nobody to leave nothing to, I'm happy to take anything you want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> any, any, anything you want to bequeath to Tavis, he's happy to take. So don't feel bad. You ain't got no offspring. You got <clears throat> if you got something to leave behind. I will happily uh, volunteer uh, to uh, to be the executor of your estate and take anything you want to leave. Uh, to me. Uh, that said, um, Tom Brokaw and others, you know, famously labeled the generation prior to the baby boom the greatest generation. If you were going to give a moniker to this generation, what moniker would that be, Philip Bump? 
I mean, honestly, look, you know, I, I hate to sound corny, but the baby boom was such a unique thing that literally, when you talk to the Census Bureau, the baby boom is the only generation they recognize. When I mean, we like to talk about greatest, we like to talk about Gen X and Gen Z and millennials, we talk about all those things, but that, that's all made up. That's all like marketing or pollsters or us sort of deciding on where the boundaries are. The baby boom was so unique in terms of how many people were born that, that it stands out as its own group of people. And, you know, it is, it is entirely derived from the number of babies that were born. So, I mean, honestly, the baby boom, you know, obviously it's fun to think about the potentially pejorative things we can label them, mm-hmm. but the baby boom actually fits very well. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we arrive at a certain point in this country, um, and I hope I can make this question make some sense to you, but because this baby boom generation is so large, and uh, many of them are in this audience right now listening, no doubt, because this generation is so large, I'm wondering if we get to a tipping point where, how can I put this, where age trumps ethnic or racial identity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that one of the things sort of fascinating about where demography is headed, so the Census Bureau puts together projections of where, how, you know, what the, the, the diversity of the country is expected to look like in future years. One of the things we see is that even after the baby boom, the percentage of Americans who are older continues to increase. Mm-hmm. So because Americans are living longer, because we have all these processes in place, because, you know, health care is better, things along those lines, even after the boom is gone in several decades, we're still going to see a much higher percentage of older Americans. And to the point I made earlier, those older Americans are going to be the people who are younger today, and the younger population today is more diverse than the old, than the older generation is today. So, yes, today we see this very large and growing population of older Americans. It's much more heavily white than the younger population. But over time, that's going to change. And as that changes, however the United States changes, uh, to the extent that it does politically, economically, culturally, because of the increased diversity of younger people, that's just going to be reflected in the same way among the older population once those young people become old. You've said two things now. I want to uh, give you a chance to unpack here. One, uh, let's do the political thing first. So you you sort of talked around this earlier, but I want to come right at it specifically right now. Um, We know that many of these white baby boomers make up the GOP. They make up the Republican Party. So let me just ask you directly, into the future, who will the GOP voters actually be and whoever they are, how does that uh, end up impacting or affecting democratic strategies? Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it is the case that baby boomers are almost evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. But because the Republican Party is so much older and so much whiter, there's a much higher percentage of the Republican Party that is boomers than is the case of the Democratic Party. Right. And so the question is, yes, what happens over time as America becomes more diverse as America's approach to things like race presumably changes to some extent, what happens to the parties? And I think the easy answer here is that the Republican Party is essentially a marketing organization. They are trying to sell themselves to America. And I think it's really unlikely that what the Republican Party is going to do is you know, maintain the same positions and, and uh, uh, viewpoints now indefinitely. I think the party is going to have to change. They're going to have to change in exactly the way they talked about in 2012 and didn't do, and exactly the way they're talking about last year, of appealing more to groups that aren't white, that aren't centered on being white and older. And I think they're necessarily going to have to change, or else just no one's going to vote for them. And I don't think that's the likely outcome. 
Yeah, they, they do. As I say, they do have a choice: change or die. But there, but there is a choice. Um, and it, 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 we could spend a, an hour talking just about that. Whether or not they are so entrenched in their positions, which they seem to be these days, are they so entrenched in their positions that they're willing to die rather than change? That they're willing to die. Uh, rather than reach out to, to black and brown and others in this country, uh, which means you have to adjust your agenda. I mean, you can't just reach out. It's not just about it's not just about running ads and sending mailers. It's really about fundamentally changing your agenda, changing the way you view America uh, and the impact it's going to have on people of color. So I, I don't know that um, that that a lot of change is exactly what we can expect from the GOP in the coming years. But I digress on that point. You mentioned the census. Well, early. But, but sure, sure. Let me make a point on that. Which sure, is sure, that sure. The, the other option isn't the Republican Party dying; it's America dying. Mm. And you know, I spoke with a historian who who looks at democracies, and he made the very valid point. Which you and your listeners are very well aware of. America has only been a democracy for everyone since the 1960s. That's right. Since the passage of the, of the Voting Rights Act, right? Like, this is new. America is new as a pluralistic democracy in which people of all different races and ethnicities can come together and make decisions about leadership. And part of what we're seeing now is a pushback on the idea that that's how, how government should work. And so we see these pushes, like, you know, the people who support Donald Trump and who are very happy to throw out democracy in support of having him stay as president. We see these things happen, and that is, unfortunately, a viable consideration for what America may look like in the coming decades. Well, I, 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 to put a finer point on it, my, my view on that, and I take everything you just said, uh, Philip, my, my view on that is that uh, in a democracy, and I say all the time on this program and beyond, that America, for me, is not as yet a democracy. At best, we are an experiment in democracy. Um, right. We have a we have a Madisonian framework that we can work inside of, but we are not as yet a democracy. We are an experiment in democracy. Having said that, it seems to me that a democracy, uh, even a democracy in training like ours, uh, has to have at a minimum two healthy parties uh, for democracy to work. Now, you can have certainly more than two, but there have to be at least two healthy parties for democracy to work. Otherwise, you end up, you know, as we may end up at some point being a plutocracy or an oligarchy or something worse, autocracy. But at the end of the day, you got to have two healthy parties. And what I'm concerned about, given what you lay out in this book and the demographics, is that we might not have, Philip, two healthy parties in the years to come. Your thoughts on that right quick? Yeah, I mean, I, I just I find it hard to believe that assuming American democracy survives and we continue to have elections, we don't revert to some sort of, you know, grotesque, you know, mockery of democracy. Right. I find it hard to believe. I mean, look at the Republican Party change. It's like, you know, look at its position on climate change, for example. It's a much mm -hmm. softer position than it had even 15 years ago. It changed True. because it's trying to reflect what people want to see. I think that's a reason for optimism. Fair enough, fair enough. When we come forward, uh, Philip mentioned the census a moment ago, and I want to ask him uh, in his research what he has discovered. I assume he has discovered some things that the census has gotten wrong, some assertions and some assumptions they've gotten wrong about this generation. His book is called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip Bump is our guest on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Every 10 years, as you uh, well know, we uh, take a photograph of America, uh, get some sense of what we look like. That photograph is called the census. Uh, and the census has given us a lot of data over the years about this particular generation, the baby boom generation. Uh, Philip Bump, what did you learn about the uh, the generation that the census uh, has gotten perhaps wrong in the uh, preceding years? 
Well, there's a, there's a lot of fascinating data in the sense. I'm a data geek, so you know, <laughs> you know, I find that fascinating. Uh, but you know, the, the the baby boom is really interesting because the boom ends in 1964, but the population of baby boomers continues to grow until 2000, and that's function immigration. And so, the baby boom itself actually got less heavily white over time because you had this population of Asian and Hispanic immigrants in particular who came to the United States, which I think is something that's under-recognized. What I'm really concerned about, though, is the Census Bureau has a really rigid definition of race, and they're trying to fix this. It's important to note. But when they talk, for example, by 2060, a certain percentage of the population will be Hispanic, a certain percentage of the population will be white, a certain percentage will be black, that's based on really hard codified definitions of race that isn't often how Americans actually identify themselves. So we saw this fascinating thing between 2010 and 2020. The Census Bureau originally wanted to change the race question so mm-hmm. they could better capture this. The Trump administration said no, in part because they didn't want to diminish the number of white Americans that were counted, uh, based on my reporting. Uh, so what the Census Bureau didn't say is they made it easier to say if you were a particular race and some mix of other things. And so, for example, you could say you were white, but also you were Portuguese, and you had a grandfather who came from Africa, and you had an aunt who came from Japan, or whatever it happens to be. They actually codified that. They made a way for that to be recorded. And what we saw then was a big surge in the percentage of Americans who identified as white and some other race, indicating that America is already much more racially diverse than most Americans recognize, we're already at this point where it doesn't really make sense to talk about a majority-minority to some extent, because so many whites already identify themselves when given the opportunity to do so as something more broad than simply white. They may identify themselves that way culturally, but that ain't how they, that ain't how they show up politically, Philip, and that's the real problem. Right. No, no, this is, this is a very valid point. So mm. part of the book, too, explores this idea of what it means to be white and who gets to count as white. And I went back and looked historically. There's this fascinating set of Supreme Court cases about a century ago in which first a Japanese man came forward and said, hey, you know what, I'm white, according to, you know, just culturally. I came from Japan, but I'm culturally white, and I have white kids and so on and so forth. And the Supreme Court said, well, no, you can't be white because you have to be from Caucasia in order to be white. And so a couple of years later, an Indian-born man came forward and said, well, you know what, I can trace my ancestors back to Caucasia, so I'm white. And the Supreme Court said, well, no, you're not white because you don't seem white to us. Right. And so the definition of whiteness has changed over time. It's actually the same Supreme Court justice said both those things. Yeah. The, the, the definition depends on how institutions and culture see you, which, to your point, is very much uh, very much still germane. Yeah, this won't surprise you as an African-American. Uh, my issue with the census and uh, wrestling with this uh, notion of how to define race uh, is that the more fluid that gets, um, uh, the less concrete uh, that uh, less concretized that that definition is. Uh, the more you have what you just described, people saying I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. Well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of the other, doesn't help direct those government dollars to communities that most need it. That's, That's right. the real problem. That's right. uh, and so, from my perspective, and, you know, if you if you got a, any black in you, I say check the black box so that the black community right. who's suffering more than any other community in this country can get the resources that it needs. Your point. Yeah, no, the, you're exactly right. And part of the reason that the Trump administration apparently didn't want to make this change is 
They didn't, for example, want to add new categories for people who are Middle Eastern. They, they were, there was actually a guy who wrote in the Wall Street Journal, they didn't want to create a new constituency of people. Well, you know, there, there are people who need those resources mm-hmm. who are underrepresented in, you know, decision making and distribution of, of resources because they aren't actually identified as separate groups in the census. You know, and it used to be the census at the beginning was simply white or enslaved. And that those were the racial categories that existed, right? Mm-hmm. And over time, because there is a need to identify which groups in America have which needs, that evolved and actually became more specific. But it is still very, very rigid in the way it's often unhelpful. Our remaining moments with Washington Post columnist Philip Bump when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Just a few minutes left with Philip Bump, author of the book The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, but he's not writing books. He's writing uh, must-read columns for the Washington Post. Uh, two things I want to cover right quick here, Philip. One, um, it seems to me <laughs> that uh, these developments that you lay out in the text are only going to benefit uh, the strength and the power uh, and the reach of AARP. Am I right or wrong about that? I mean, it, to some extent, it already has. I mean, AARP is now, you know, they, 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 I spoke with a representative. They aren't the Association of Retired People anymore, and now it's basically everyone 15 up. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, any, any organization which can appeal to older Americans is going to benefit, which is exactly the trend we've seen since the beginning with boomers. You know, literally one of the first companies in baby boom were people that sold diapers because there are all yeah. these babies being born, and now it's a senior's trend. Yeah, uh, and ultimately, uh, and this is the uh, I guess the penultimate question: What um, do you see um, with regards to how this generation will reshape the country in the years to come? I mean, it really comes down to the decisions that the boomers decide to make, right? I mean, there, you know, to the point you made earlier about Bill Clinton saying that elections are the future. This is absolutely the case, and that boomers still hold a disproportionate amount of power, in part because young people don't vote as often as they ought to, uh, and in part because boomers already hold elected office. Uh, they're the ones making decisions, so they can do things like choose to, you know, spend more money on new housing, for example, or spend money to, or, or change immigration rules to make sure that we have a big supply of uh, people who are willing to come in and work mm-hmm. uh, and uh, offset some of the losses of tax revenue. Like, they can make those decisions now. Uh, the question just is what decisions they make. And finally, is there, are there one or two critical takeaways that generations to come, millennials, Gen Z, uh, Gen X, are, are there one or two takeaways that we should learn from the baby boom generation? Take from them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for generations, particularly the millennial generation, which is almost as big as the baby boom generation, but it's just the population overall is so much larger. The millennial generation should really pay attention to the ways in which they feel frustrated by the way uh, by how baby boomers hold power. And so when millennials get to that point, which they will, and they are the ones that control Congress, and they're the ones that hold a disproportionate amount of wealth, they ought to be more cognizant of things like housing. They ought to be more cognizant of things like, uh, you know, ensuring that, that there is uh, uh, wealth, even wealth distribution, things, things that are concerns that they have now once they get into power, I think it's important for them to reflect on what they didn't like about how the boomers wielded power and try and make change if they think that's important. Yep. 
Um, I hear you loud and clear. Uh, the book is called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, written by, best-selling book, I should say, uh, written by the very popular Washington Post columnist Philip Bump, who I've been delighted to have had as a guest on the program in this first hour today. Philip, congrats on the book. Thanks for the conversation. Good to have you on, my friend. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Hour 2 of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.